Hello and welcome to Fintech Bytes, a podcast series from CMS, in which we will discuss and provide insight into some of the latest technology and regulatory developments, market trends and issues affecting fintech and innovation in financial services. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the CMS Fintech Bytes series. My name is Rachel Harrison and I'm a Senior Associate and Solicitor Advocate in the Finance Disputes team. I'm joined by Vanessa Whitman, who's a partner and a solicitor advocate in the team, and we're both members of the CMS FinTech Practice Group. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Vanessa and I started our careers as what you might call traditional finance litigators, acting almost exclusively for large banks and other financial institutions who found themselves in contentious situations. But in the last few years, we've seen a sharp uptick in instructions from payment firms and FinTech. And this really reflects the wider market. Back in October 2020, The Economist published an article on the future of finance. It included a chart which analysed the top 500 banks, payment firms and fintechs globally by percentage share of market capitalisation over the last 10 years. And the chart showed that in 2010, payment firms occupied less than 10% of this market and that fintechs occupied none of it. Now, just 10 years later, payment and fintech firms have increased their combined market share to almost 30%. The market continues to change very rapidly, and the recent pandemic has only added strength to this digital surge. Yeah, that's definitely right. The recent Khalifa review of UK fintech noted that fintech is not a niche within financial services, nor is it a subsector. It's a permanent technological revolution that's changing the way we do finance. And that's, of course, precisely the way we see it. So it's no surprise that our day-to-day -day work now encompasses work for payment firms and fintechs. So today, Vanessa and I will be talking about some of the key lessons that we've learnt from disputes in which we've acted for fintechs. We'll shed light on how a fintech can set itself up to minimise the risk of disputes. We'll talk about the types of things that a fintech should think about when it's faced with a dispute. And we'll talk about some of the legal tools that can be useful to fintechs in the early stages of a dispute. So, Vanessa, perhaps I could kick off with a question for you. What would be your number one recommendation to a fintech which is looking to minimise the risk of disputes? I'd definitely say that it's really important to make sure that all agreements and decisions are written down. Often, the very process of writing down agreements and decisions flushes out any differences in understanding between the parties so that they can be resolved straight away. And of course, if the parties start to disagree about the subject matter of an agreement or a decision in due course, they can refer back to what they wrote down and check exactly what was agreed. And that's really a very simple step, but it can be key to preventing those smaller disagreements from becoming more substantial disputes. And do you have specific types of agreements and decisions in mind when you say that? I think probably all material agreements and decisions should be written down, dated and signed. We've acted on a number of um, disputes in the last year or so for fintechs, which have begun as small enterprises, essentially between friends or even family members. And these businesses have been typically really good about documenting their agreements with third parties like suppliers, but much less so when it comes to documenting internal agreements and decisions. In these sorts of less formal startup environments, there can be a tendency to work based on trust and, and an assumed common understanding based on common goals. But of course, that's not particularly helpful as and when things start to go wrong. Businesses can find themselves embroiled in disputes which are argued on the basis of who said what to whom, 
when by far the most efficient way to prove what was agreed or decided is by referring back to a written document. So I definitely encourage fintechs to write down all material agreements and decisions, including those internal agreements like shareholder agreements or agreements about employment and exit terms, decisions about who will have responsibility for particular business functions and decisions taken at board meetings. Now, I totally accept that that might feel odd or even uncomfortable if you're in business with someone you're close to on a personal level. But I think we've seen enough examples recently to be confident that that really is solid advice and that those early agreements right from the outset ought to be properly documented. Now, I can imagine that many startup fintechs will be hearing this and groaning at the thought of incurring legal fees at an early stage. Do you think that lawyers always need to be involved in drafting these agreements? In an ideal world, yes. This will help to ensure that agreements are as unambiguous and watertight as possible. And also lawyers can approach agreements from that external perspective and help to flag legal and practical issues that the parties might not always be able to spot for themselves. But having said that, I totally appreciate that budgets can be tight and it's not always possible to instruct lawyers. And where that's the case, I'd encourage the business to write down those agreements for themselves in language that all parties are clear on and have each party sign that agreement or indicate clear agreement by way of unequivocal um, acceptance on an email, for example. So I guess that's my number one recommendation to a fintech looking to minimise risk of disputes. Um, Rachel, but what's yours? Um, well, I think you've made good points and I'd echo what you've said about ensuring that agreements are written down. As you were talking, I was actually thinking back to a dispute that we recently acted on in relation to a group of companies that had conducted an initial coin offering. And the group had documented some agreements, but the dispute could have been resolved so much more easily if it had written down which group company was intended to have control of the ICO proceeds at various times and what it was actually intended that company would do with them. Um, but that's dodging the question. So my, I suppose, number two recommendation would be to keep up to date with regulatory changes and ideally nominate someone who's responsible for doing so. Now, there are obvious areas where fintechs will need to take legal advice, for example, on whether they need to be authorised by or registered with the Financial Conduct Authority and on financial promotion rules. To give a really quick overview, depending on the precise nature of the business, of course, fintechs will typically need to be authorised by the FCA. They'll need to register with the FCA if they carry out certain crypto asset related activities like changing crypto assets to fiat money or vice versa. And they'll also need to be aware of the rules relating to financial promotion, which apply to marketing activities by firms and are soon going to include marketing crypto assets. Um, but there's a need for fintechs to scan for regulatory changes that might affect them so that they can then know to take the appropriate advice and uh, avoid enforcement actions and disputes. And have you got any practical tips on how a fintech can do that? Um, I mean, there are loads of useful resources out there. And whilst I might have a bias, um, I'd recommend signing up to CMS RegZone or CMS Law Now updates or visiting our CMS fintech webpage. Our regulatory and transactional colleagues like Sam Robinson and Charles Kerrigan publish loads of free to access updates on the latest regulatory changes. Now, you talked earlier about how a fintech might be able to resolve a disagreement by referring back to written agreements. 
we both know from our day-to-day -day jobs that sometimes disagreements can't be resolved that easily and turn into real disputes. And as and when this happens, what do you think the first things are that a fintech should be thinking about? There are a few basic questions that a fintech can ask itself to start working out the best way forwards and to help inform their strategy. These are the type of questions that we'd be asking our fintech clients who approached us to help with a dispute. First, I'd ask how much time are you or the business prepared to spend on the dispute? Dispute resolution can be really time intensive, particularly if the parties end up in formal legal proceedings. TV programmes like Suits can sometimes give the misleading impression that once parties end up in formal legal proceedings, the case is simply handed over to the lawyers. And to some extent that's right, because lawyers will obviously handle the day-to-day -day work, but it would be totally wrong to assume that the business can hand it over the dispute in its entirety. There will always be a need for an ongoing dialogue between the lawyers and the business, with the business required to make the key decisions and to find documents and even possibly put forward witnesses. And it's important to remember and be realistic about the fact that all of that can detract from the work that the business could be doing elsewhere on other projects. So it's really important for fintechs in this situation to think about how important this dispute is to it and how much time it's willing to spend on it. That will help inform the business's strategy, whether it wants to settle a matter as quickly as possible or fight it tooth and nail. The second question is related to the first, but this time it's about how much money you're prepared to spend. There's no two ways about it. Legal fees can mount up, particularly if a business ends up in formal legal proceedings. A fintech that's faced with a dispute will need to think about what financial resources it's willing to dedicate to that dispute. If cash is an issue, you might consider trying to resolve the dispute for yourself or making it clear to your lawyers that you want to try to resolve that dispute at an early stage through alternative dispute resolution and not through court proceedings. In other words, that you'd like to seek a settlement. We find it really useful when fintech clients are open with us at an early stage about what they're willing to spend so that we can tailor our strategy accordingly. The third question would be to think about um, other non-monetary sensitivities. So the most common sensitivity that we come across is around reputation, but this can work in two very different ways. Many fintechs spend a lot of time and resources working on their brand. And for some, this might mean that they're prepared to fight in court for what they consider to be right. For others, this might mean that they don't want to air their dirty laundry in public and would like those disputes to be resolved quietly by negotiation. Next, I'd be thinking about whether the fintech has any evidence to support its position. This point probably speaks for itself, um, but if the, if the business has a lot of evidence to, to support the position, um, then it will be in a good place to take a robust stance in any, any negotiation or litigation. On the other hand, if it has very little evidence in support, it may try to dispose of that litigation at an early stage. And the last question would be, what's the ideal outcome for the SimTech client and what outcomes could it live with? I always like to ask, if you had a magic wand, what would you be wishing for? But then I follow up with, if the magic wand was to break partway through that wish, which bits would you prioritise? Only the business can answer that. And although clearly we as lawyers can help um, advise you and guide you through that decision process, um, it really is a question for FinTech. Does the business want to win at court, never mind the cost and publicity, or does it want the problem to go away quietly? So anything else you can think of, Rachel? There are a couple of practical points that I think a fintech should think about when faced with a dispute. 
The first is that the fintech will need to consider whether it's got an obligation to notify its insurers, its regulator, uh, or any other parties about the dispute. The second then is what you've, uh, it's linked to what you've said about evidence. It's really important that the fintech preserves any hard copy and electronic documents which may be relevant to the dispute, including any documents that might be held on its behalf by agents or third parties. And often this will involve it needing to pause an automatic document destruction process. This will help to preserve evidence, obviously. Um, it'll also go towards satisfying the fintech's document preservation obligations. To explain very briefly, when a business knows that it is or may be a party to legal proceedings, it's got a procedural obligation to preserve documents in its control that may be relevant to any issue in the proceedings. And this applies whether the documents help its case, hinder its case, or are just neutral. And so it's really important to ensure that potentially relevant documents are preserved. Yes, definitely. And document preservation is one of the very first things that we talk to a new client about. For anyone who hasn't been involved in litigation in this jurisdiction before, it can come as quite a surprise that you might have to disclose documents which are unhelpful to your own case or which support your opponent's case. So it's really important that our clients know that at the earliest stages. I think actually one more point is that it's really important for fintechs to ask lots of questions of their lawyers at an early stage, particularly if they're unfamiliar with the litigation process. We're obviously used to acting for fintechs and payment firms who have never been in a serious dispute before, and we know it can be really foreign and really daunting. We're happy to talk through the litigation process, and we also have self-education resources that we can point clients to if they're then like to go away and find out more for themselves. In my introduction, um, I said that we would talk about some of the legal tools that can be useful to fintechs at the early stages of a dispute. Here we're obviously talking about a situation where the fintech has not been able to resolve a disagreement on its own and it's turned to dispute resolution lawyers for help. What types of tools might we think about using? I think the first things we would talk about are the pre-action protocols, even if they're not really legal tools. Sure. Shall I talk a little bit about the pre-action protocols and then I can hand over to you to talk about the more specific legal tools? Yeah, that's great. So the pre-action protocols set out the steps that the court would normally expect parties to take before they start proceedings. This means that if a dispute is edging towards proceedings, the parties will need to start engaging with the protocols. The objectives of the protocols are to ensure that parties to a dispute understand each other's position, can make informed decisions about how to proceed, and can try and settle the dispute without the need for proceedings. This can all sound really collaborative to people who aren't familiar with the English litigation system, but it does make sense. The idea of the protocols is to ensure that disputes are settled at minimum cost and without wasting either the parties or the court's resources. The protocols dictate that the claimant in a dispute should send out what's known as a letter of claim or a letter before action to the defendant. This will set out their claim in relatively fulsome terms and then the defendant will respond to that letter of claim in similarly fulsome terms. The party should also exchange key documents relevant to the dispute. And this process hones the party's mind on the issues in dispute and gives them an early insight into what the merits of the claim might be. A lot of claims actually go on to settle in the pre-action stages because after this exchange of information, the parties find that they are able to negotiate a settlement. So the pre-action protocols can actually be really useful in triggering the resolution of a dispute 
or if that's not possible, um, in ensuring that the parties enter into any proceedings with their eyes fully open to the issues in dispute. Perhaps, Vanessa, you could talk a little bit about specific legal tools now. Yes, absolutely. I think it's relevant to talk about the types of application that a party can make to the court at the very outset of a dispute. These can broadly be divided into applications aimed at accessing documents or information, or secondly, applications aimed at requiring a party to do or not do something. In the first category, we have what's known as pre-action disclosure applications and Norwich Pharmacal applications. Pre-action disclosure applications are pretty much what they say on the tin. Very broadly, they're applications that are made to the court before proceedings have started, in which the applicant seeks disclosure of certain documents. The court can only order pre-action disclosure if it's satisfied that the applicant and the respondent are likely to go on to be parties to proceedings, and that the document sought would be disclosed as part of the disclosure process in those proceedings. The court won't allow the applicant to use this type of application to go on to what is known as a fishing expedition, in other words, just to try to snoop on the other side's documents. The applicant will need to persuade the court that disclosure is necessary to dispose fairly of the proceedings, to assist the parties to resolve the dispute or to save costs. To give an example, an applicant might be able to argue that disclosure is necessary to dispose fairly of the upcoming proceedings where it can show that there is a risk that the respondent will destroy documents before the proceedings start. The second type of application that I mentioned, Norwich Pharmacal applications, have a much less user-friendly name which derives from the name of an old court case. I know that you'll be in a good position to talk about what they are, Rachel, given that we recently made a Norwich Pharmacal application from one of our fintech clients. Yeah, that's right. So a Norwich Pharmacal application is an application for a Norwich Pharmacal order, funnily enough, which is an order requiring the respondent to the application to disclose specific information to the applicant. They're typically used where a party knows that wrongdoing has taken place against it, but doesn't know the identity of the wrongdoer, but can identify a third party who has that information or other relevant information that's necessary for the applicant to pursue a remedy. They can be used to get information from that third party that allows the applicant to bring proceedings against the wrongdoer or to help the applicant to trace assets. It's important to say that the respondent to the application, in other words, the third party, doesn't need to be a wrongdoer themselves. They simply need to have become mixed up in the wrongdoing in some way. The court will assess and balance all of the factors of a particular case, and it'll consider whether it would be just to grant the order that's sought. A couple of things that I should mention Firstly, there's a duty on the applicant for a Norwich Pharmacal order to provide full and frank disclosure to the court. And secondly, they'll typically be expected to pay the respondent's costs of complying with the order. However, an applicant may well consider that those costs are worth incurring if the application then allows them to go on and bring a claim against the wrongdoer. You talked earlier about a second category of application, Vanessa, which requires a party to do or to stop doing something. And I presume you're talking about injunctions there. Yeah, that's right. Um, I just wanted to briefly mention freezing orders and other injunctions. Uh, freezing orders are amongst the most powerful legal tools available in a dispute and essentially act to freeze or protect particular assets which might be at the centre of a dispute from dissipation or interference until the dispute is ultimately resolved by the court. Importantly, these assets can also include cryptocurrencies. Last year, the English courts held in a case called AA and Persons Unknown that crypto assets like Bitcoin 
our property for the purposes of injunctions, um, which is really good news for anyone operating in, in the crypto space. Other types of injunction might require a party to stop doing something or less commonly to positively do something. So in the case of a fintech dispute, an example might be um, requiring a party to remove the brand name of the applicant party from the opponent party's website. But because of their potentially draconian nature, particularly as regards freezing orders, um, they come at a cost, perhaps most importantly in terms of costs and damages undertakings that have to be given to the court um, by the party who is applying for those orders. To explain briefly, when a party applies for a freezing order, it has to give what's called a cross undertaking in damages, which is effectively a promise to the court that if the court grants the order and freezes the assets, but ultimately the court later decides that you were wrong to seek a freezing order, that you will pay the damages caused to the counterparty to your dispute. In some cases, those damages can be enormous. For example, if the frozen assets were required for a particular deal that falls through as a result of the freeze. So applicants should think really carefully with the help of their lawyers, of course, before applying for such an order. I think it's probably important for us to note at this stage, Vanessa, that many of the disputes that we're involved in don't involve applications for pre-action disclosure for Norwich Pharmacal orders or for injunctions. Often they'll simply involve us engaging in pre-action correspondence with the counterparty in an effort to flush out the issues in the dispute. And then in a lot of cases, we'll be able to bring about a resolution of that dispute and, of course, ensure that that's documented in a suitable manner that protects our clients' interests. Of course, in some cases, the case won't be resolved and it'll enter into proceedings, but that could probably be a topic for a whole other podcast. Indeed, and I expect we've taken up enough of our listeners' time today. So I think it only remains for me to say thank you very much for listening. We hope that you were able to take away some practical tips from our conversation about legal disputes. If you want any further details around this topic or any of the points that we've discussed in this podcast, then you can contact either myself or Vanessa and our contact details are linked below. If you have a more general interest in fintech, you can visit our fintech webpage and Twitter page, which are also linked below. Thank you very much for listening and take care.